You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On this episode, we welcome back Ravi Bally to talk about a piece he recently authored about the dangerous and frightening far-right turn of former Marxist and RCP figurehead Frank Ferrady. Ferrady, a one-time self-described revolutionary communist, spoke at this year's CPAC conference in Hungary. In this conversation, we asked the question of how Ferrady could have fallen so far. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. Hi, this is Andrew. I'm here to announce that Marxist Humanist Initiative will hold three public meetings via Skype to discuss Karl Marx's critique of the Gotha program, written in 1875. That critique is one of Marx's most important statements about the future of socialist society and how it will differ from capitalism. And when we read it in the context of the organizational dispute in which Marx intervened, the critique also has much to offer on the relationship between revolutionary theory and philosophy on the one hand, and revolutionary organization on the other. Uh, Raya Dunyevskaya argued that the critique set out a new ground for organization. The series will be held on three Sundays, July 31, August 14, and August 28. Uh, from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Uh, I'll be the presenter in the first meeting. Uh, In addition to the text of Marx's critique, the readings include a new unpublished paper of mine which analyzes what the critique says about capitalism versus communism. Uh, The second meeting will be chaired by Francisco Palacios. It will be a question and answer session. Participants can bring whatever questions that they still have about the text's of Marx's critique and invite others to answer. Uh, Ravi Bali will be the main presenter in the third meeting, which is on the organizational implications uh, of the critique. To attend, you must be invited by Marxist Humanist Initiative. To apply, send MHI no later than July 24 a brief statement about yourself, why you want to attend our meetings other than your personal love of learning, and what contribution you might make to a Marxist-Humanist discussion uh, of Marx's critique. Also send your Skype address. Uh, The email address to write is mhi at marxisthumanistinitiative.org. Act now, because there's only a couple of days left until the July 24 application deadline. Uh, For further information on this series of meetings, check out the article that we're going to link to in the description text for this episode. Hope to see you there. Well, today is July 20th, and for our current events segment on this episode, we're going to be talking about a June 12th piece in Salon by Paul Rosenberg. It's titled, Trumpism Without Trump, Maybe He's Beginning to Fade, But the Danger to Democracy Isn't. And the piece is a somewhat lengthy comparison of the how Trump's big lie is a... Um, reincarnation of the lost cause ideology that was uh, developed by reactionaries after the Civil War. And also a discussion of the way that this playbook uh, around challenging the legitimacy of elections and playing into notions of like white victimhood is created a strategy for the Republican Party that can easily outlast Trump's particular political fortunes and sort of a playbook for forward, you know, reactionary politics uh, in America. As you pointed out to me, Andrew, before we recorded, and as Paul Rosenberg points out in this piece, a lot of people are talking about this issue that Trump is maybe badly damaged by the January 6th hearings, that there are potential challenges coming from different other people in the Republican Party uh, for the next presidential election. But a lot of people are pointing out that Trumpism is not as in danger as Trump's po- political fortunes are. 
Right. I, I mean, I think the analysis that uh, Rosenberg uh, provides is, as far as it goes, it's uh, very good. We have for a very long time said that Trumpism is a pre-existing condition, predates Trump. We've traced the support that George Wallace had in the late 60s and early 70s, the same voter base, the same kind of racist you know, inclinations uh, has nothing to do with neoliberalism or globalization. It's all prior to that. We did that because we were able to get hard statistics on the extent of the support, which was not only in the South, but it was also in the, in the North. But, you know, as Rosenberg points out, this extends all the way back to the Reconstruction era and the attempt to salvage white supremacy after that and to create a, a false narrative about what the slavery in the South was like, what the Civil War was about, and, and, and so forth. So, yeah, it's got very deep roots and it goes way back. You're not going to get rid of this phenomenon just by chopping off the head, although you, you do got to chop off that head. So, I mean, as far as it goes, I think that, that the, the analysis is, is quite right. There's, there's another issue of how well will they be able to keep a Trumpite party going once Trump is, assuming that, that he does go down in one way or another, how likely will it be that they can maintain a Trumpite uh, party going forward. Yeah, and this is something I know we've touched on on the podcast before and also in MHI's 2018 perspectives, Resisting Trumpist Reaction, that even though Trumpism is a phenomena that extends beyond Trump, that it was like a pre-existing sentiment in society before Trump became president, and that it will exist in some form after Trump, defeating Trumpism definitely requires defeating Trump himself as a person, whether that is politically, you know, criminally, what have you. The, the cult of Trumpism, the cult of the charismatic leader, needs to be broken in order to diminish the, the Trumpite base, to make them feel scared, to make, take away this uh, emboldened feeling they have that they can be racist and violent with impunity. It's a very big deal. If you have a cult of personality, if you have a belief in the great leader, I alone can fix it, and that person goes down, that kind of shakes a lot of confidence, uh, and it shakes that immediate attachment of the individual to the entirety of the movement through the uh, personality of, of that leader. So I, I have no doubt that Trumpism is going to continue after Trump. The question is, will it be able to maintain as much political efficacy if he goes down? And it's not only a matter of like what Fox does or, you know, DeSantis this and, and Tucker Carlson that. Trump in 2020 got 74 million votes, which is, uh, I think, 11 more, million more than he got in 2016. How many of those votes were because of Donald Trump, the personality, the, the, the head of the cult? How many of those people might sit out the election if there's somebody running like a DeSantis or something like that? You know, I, I don't know. I don't know if any, anybody knows. But one thing, obviously, that has attracted the Trumpite base is the fact that Trump is a malignant narcissist par excellence. I mean, he is, you know, pure evil. DeSantis is, is also evil, but not as raw in his evil as Trump. And, you know, that can have an effect. So I, I think that, that if Trump goes down, Trumpism isn't going away, but they might have a hard time uh, keeping the whole package together. We'll see what kind of damage candidates do to each other as they vie for the GOP nomination in 2024. Yeah, who can accuse who of having the smallest penis? Yeah, yeah the, the problem is, though, it's the cert. yeah, like, exactly, it's this race to the bottom of see who can be, like, Trumpier than the next guy. I don't know where that's taking the Republican Party. We can just hope that maybe some of these voters at the margin will be, like, discouraged or shaved off by this juvenile fight to out-Trump Trump or by the fact that they just, like you said, don't have the right sort of uh, unhinged toddler celebrity to hang their reactionary uh, hopes on. Well, the, the, uh, the, the story that came out in Politico today I thought was significant. The accumulation of facts is, is getting to the, the GOP. The piece is called, It's the Accumulation. The January 6th hearings are wounding Trump after all. Um, by David Siders. 
and it's interesting. I found the, the article very interesting uh, in terms of precisely how these hearings are damaging Trump and his chances to get the nomination a third time, you know, in the GOP, because the uh, Republican base, the you know, the Trumpite base is not paying any attention to the hearings. They're calling it a witch hunt, blah, 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 all that stuff. And even like the people one step removed from that, basically everybody except for the never Trumpers, all of the GOP, they're not paying attention to the hearings. They're, they're trying to dismiss it. How then are these hearings damaging Trump's prospects within the GOP? Well, these people look at the polls. They they they, they see that outside of the Republican Party, Trump is slipping. And since they want political power, they go, oh, well, maybe he's not the best uh, horse to hang our hat on in 2024. Let's shop around. So it's not that these people uh, have seen the light. They got their blinders on. They're never going to see the light. They don't want to see the light. But if you know there are enough independent voters and so forth, and it looks like the uh, January 6th he- uh, hearings have made a dent with, with those kinds of folks, it looks like a lot of the GOP is, best, is saying, well, let's shop around for, for an alternative to Donald Trump being the face of Trumpism. We'll see. I feel like um, I've been having this conversation for six years. Yes, that that is that's the for sure thing. You know, always like you know, it's going to be this that takes him down. It's going to be the Access Hollywood tape. It's going to yeah. be, you know, what he said about Judge Coriel. It's going to be what he said about the uh, Gold Star families. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Holy shit! I mean, we could do a whole six-year recap of all the times people said, "Oh, this has got to be this has got to be the last straw. There's no way he could survive this." Um, yeah, I, I I think it took people it took me a long time i think it took a lot of other people a very long time to see that what the base loved about donald trump was precisely you know how disgusting and unacceptable and malicious and malignant narcissistic and and just you know everything wrong about him is exactly what they want that is i think what what never uh, penetrated until very very recently yeah, I agree. <clears throat> well, we're going to leave it at that. Um, up next, our conversation with Ravi Bally about the reactionary turn of Frank Ferretti. Today is July 18th, and we are pleased to have back on the podcast Ravi Bally to talk about a piece he wrote in With Sober Senses back on May 30th. The piece is called Ex-Marxist Ferretti joins racist authoritarians at CPAC Hungary. I thought maybe just the first paragraph of that piece might make a good intro. Uh, the piece starts, Frank Ferretti, who was, who was the foremost intellectual of the UK radical left group, the Revolutionary Communist Party, for more than 25 years, has made the transition from revolutionary Marxism into the fold of white nationalist authoritarianism. Ferretti spoke last week at the Conservative Political Action Conference at CPAC in Budapest, Hungary, CPAC is organized by the American Conservative Union, the foremost right-wing Republican organization in the United States. Ravi Bally, our guest today, has been on the, our podcast before. He's a contributor to uh, With Sober Senses, MHI's publication, but he was also, uh, at one point, a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party, Frank Ferretti's organization. And so he has a unique perspective on the right-wing turn of this intellectual and Ravi, you're also working on an additional piece in this topic, is that right? That's correct, yes. It's, it's more expansive. It deals with his, where he is now uh, on a range of topics, but not just his speech at CPAC, but also articles he's written more recently that kind of illustrate the character of his turn towards the far right. That would not be posted before this podcast goes live, but we'll mention it when it's ready to roll. Okay, so we've given listeners a real brief thumbnail sketch of who Frank Ferretti is and your relationship to him, Ravi. But why did you decide to write about him now? And is there more that people should know about him before we get into the nuts and bolts of your criticisms? Well, for a start, he is not just on his own. Even though he was the the former head of the Revolutionary Communist Party, there are a whole load of people he's carried with him into his turn to the right. So the online publication Spiked 
is still very much guided by him. The um, Intellectual Events Company, the Academy of Ideas, which used to be known as the Institute of Ideas, are also influenced by his ideas. And he's got a whole milieu of people who project the same sorts of stuff that he does. And they're, they're quite a, they're not an insignificant force on the conservative right in the culture wars. So it's more than just about him. He's the guiding, the leading light in a, a broader milieu of people that are pushing right-wing ideas. You mentioned Spiked, uh, the publication. That's a publication that we have discussed critically before. But could you briefly, Ravi, explain the relationship of Spike to Frady, to the RCP, and to this right-word turn in, in, in certain parts of the left in the UK? Well, when Spiked was first started, and for a long time afterwards, Brady used to have weekly meetings with the editor to kind of guide them on what the touch-button issues should be for that week. There, there was always kind of quite a tight rein on what went into Spiked. The actual editing and everything else was left to somebody else, but he, he very much guided the direction of it for a long time, probably still now, because if you look at when he writes a major piece, you'll see a whole load of articles following up from other writers on Spiked that echo the points that he puts forward. So there's still that very tight-knit relationship between him and Spiked. And Spiked has had this uh, a parallel rightward turn in its politics over the years. Yeah, they started off as very much within the left, part of a, a Marxist orientation to critiquing, for example, the Marxism Today crowd. The Marxism Today crowd basically said that the need to overcome capitalism and to break with it and create a new society, that's all old hats. And the publication that the RCP came out with at the time was Living Marxism, and they, they were critiquing that sort of thing. And Spike continued that sort of orientation in their early period before taking a libertarian turn, um, a libertarian individualist turn, which stressed individual responsibility for what's going on and saying that before you could have a collective fight back against the system, you had to have individuals who had a sense of confidence about themselves and their capacity to make an impact on the world. And that libertarian individualism shifted further rightwards as time went on. So that's been their trajectory over the last 20-odd years or so. 20-very-odd years. What is, if any, what, what is the international significance of all of this for Rady and, and Hill's milieu? Why should people outside of that milieu uh, care about any of this, uh, especially people not in the UK? Is there any, like, real pull that it has, connections that it has outside of uh, the UK. Yes. The fact that Faraday was speaking at CPAC in Hungary is an indication that he is an international player. He visits the US reasonably often and speaks here. There's a connection. I, I don't know the, the specific personnel, but he cites a number of people on the American right fairly often, and he's cited by them as an interesting figure with iconoclastic ideas. The, the thing that makes him particularly dangerous that he gives an intellectual gloss to right-wing populism, what should really be called white nationalism, by downplaying the significance of the, the racist, sexist, xenophobic, anti-gay, all the reactionary characters of this movement of the far right and saying that it's something else and that it's just a rejection of political correctness or the over-regulation of free speech. That's why he's, he's, he's particularly dangerous, because he makes connections internationally and he's an intellectual cover for far more reactionary ideas. He makes space for them by making excuses for them. And does he have a, <clears throat> does he have a following? I mean, is he a popular intellectual figure? He's not in the same league as someone like Jordan Peterson, for example, who traffics in a number of the same sort of ideas. But I think that he's probably got more connections in terms of like people of influence who, because the Academy of Ideas, and before it, as it used to be called, the Institute of Ideas, has a lot of public figures who are anything from centre-left to centre-right and sometimes further to the right, proper conservatives, who will share a platform with Faraday and other Spike people. 
And there is a, a kind of an effort to become part of the intellectual framework and discussion of how politics is discussed, not just in this country, but internationally. And they have at least one uh, member of parliament, do they not? They have a member of the House of Lords, yes. And um, Claire Fox, who well, still runs the Academy of Ideas, has been appointed by the Johnson government to the House of Lords. She's now a dame in the unelected body that is the second chamber in the UK Parliament. And what about, like, former members of the RCP? Did, does he have a, still a lot of pull within that crowd? There's a certain section of them that have stayed with him that push the same ideas. So, for example, there's a, a woman called Joanna Williams, who's just written a book called How Wake Won, which is a, a tirade against all the stuff that he describes as woke. And Brendan O'Neill is a, a significant figure. He's He does trips around the world and he's a provocateur, really. He's, he's one of those people who, again, has a, a pithy way of presenting reaction in what seemed like commonsensical terms. Right. In your article, Ravi, that was on the occasion of CPAC conference in Hungary. Ferretti spoke there. Uh, and you went into some detail about Ferretti's relationship to Hungary's government and to Viktor Orban, the head of that government. I'd like you to talk about that a bit, but first, can you describe what kind of government Hungary has and why it's of such interest internationally to, let's say, in the U.S., Trumpite and other far-right forces? Also, is, is that something common to the U.S. and the U.K.? Is there uh, an attraction of Hungary to the, the far right in the UK. And why is Ferreti interested in and involved in all of this? Well, Ferreti is Hungarian. That's, that's where he was born and his family are from. And his links to Orban are a little bit peculiar in some ways because Ferreti is of a Jewish background. And the Orban government has notoriously been trading in anti-Semitism and racism and you know, all the general reactionary stuff that you see in far-right politicians. He's, he's kind of cowed his political opponents, had them arrested. He's deposed judges that have, like, looked into his business affairs. He's kind of cowed the media and jailed journalists who've spoken out against him. He's got all the hallmarks of a, an authoritarian regime. And Faraday and the spiked crowd more broadly make apologies for that by saying that, well, they have elections, they are an elected government, as though that is the sum total of what a democracy is, that you at some point have elections, however unfree and unfair they are, that is for them sufficient to call it a democracy. And the reason why it's kind of interesting is because in the same way that Brazil under Bolsonaro has become a focal point for reactionaries to see what it's possible to do if you seize the levers of power and use them in a particular way. So you had Tucker Carlson going down there over the last couple of months and talking it up. It's the same way that many, many American conservatives look to Hungary and say, look, everything that Orban's doing is something that we should take a much closer look at. And it's precisely because of what they see as a muscular defense of traditional conservatism, where he attacks LGBTQ, you know, he's got all kinds of expletives to describe people who are pushing for their rights. The racism is like quite on the surface. These are the things that the American right are thinking, well, this is something that we could learn from because he gets away with it in a way that our media and our public do not seem quite receptive to. And so I think the, the calling of the CPAC conference in Hungary was an effort to build links so that those relationships between the, the newly white nationalist um, Republican Party in the US could learn something from Orban's government. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You could say he gets away with it because he has state power, and so he's able to basically, you know, suppress the, the media, the opposition, and so forth, and he does that. But what he stressed, uh, Orban did at the occasion of uh, CPAC, if I remember, is what the far right needs to do is to have its media blaring 24-7 and completely disengage the people around it from legitimate uh, sources of information and news and basically create their own alternative reality.
Yeah, I mean, he, he praised Tucker Carlson and said that, that he should be on 24-7. It should just be this kind of propaganda push of these right-wing ideas with nothing that would distract from that message. There's a, a definite coming together of how society should be shaped by the far right in America and Orban's government. Right. So the, the point I was getting at was, was just that you could say, well, the political power is the road to conquering the media and the party system. But what Orban was saying is conquering the media space is the road to uh, political power. So but what is, you know, why is Ferreira interested in Hungary? Um, well, he works for something called the 21st Century Institute, which is basically a propaganda unit for the Fidesz party, which is the, the, the organization that Orban heads, it's the political party that he's the head of. And Ferreira writes stuff for them as a researcher. I haven't read any of the publications that he does for them, but... There's been a whole host of people who've resigned. So he's one of the very few people who are left in this institution that is the ma major propaganda unit for the Orban government. And Ferreira has received awards for his intellectual services from the Hungarian government under Orban. It's all very hand in glove with what Orban represents. And does the far right in the UK have any real strong interest in, in Hungary? I'm not aware of it if they do. The far right in the UK are not as developed as they are in the US. Let me put it that way. And that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Parade is a bit of an outlier in that respect. So I guess one of the big questions, right, is just how Faraday got from being a self-described Marxist to being this populist reactionary. One could explain it as just being you know, that, he, that he sold out, right? Sometimes these kind of transformations are described that way. But it's somewhat hard to believe that Frady's turn toward reactionary politics came out of nowhere. So are there like continuities? Can you see how he got from point A to point B uh, without it just being like some kind of clean break or about face? I can. The RCP always used to have this kind of approach of trying to polarize every single discussion and to put themselves at one end of that polarization. It was in order to force people to choose sides and to that, that polarization of the discussion in that way was a way to recruit people. Because if you could break them from their existing viewpoint and bring them over to and be convinced of what we represented, I was in it at that time, then there was more chance that they would stick with it. So, for example, I remember being a, an early party educational where they were, they were talking about the occupation of Ireland by the British troops. And rather than just a straightforward troops out of Ireland, which they printed a leaflet and were giving it away and didn't get much of a response, they then went away, rethought it, and came back with something that said, we support the Irish right to fight in whatever way they see fit. And so then that did get a response. That said, so what? You support them bombing you know, British cities. And that, that was like a really polarizing way of presenting the issue because it would immediately provoke a response to, so you're supporting terrorists. And we would say, well, and then you repose it to say, well, do you think Britain should be an island? And they said, no. And the, the argument becomes about how do you define the nature of the conflict? So that polarizing approach was always what the RCP went for on every single issue. And you see that somehow there's a connection between that and Ferreira's behavior and that of, let's say, spiked and the rest of that milieu uh, still today? I think contrarianism is a way for them to stand out. At the time, it was to help them stand out from the left, um, from other competitors within the left, and to draw people towards them as the most radical option. Today, I think it's much more an effort to define yourselves against everything that represents itself as a demand for change. And they're saying, well, no, that demand, whether it be for Black Lives Matter, they, they spend ages attacking that. The feminism, they attack it as like completely reactionary. The advocacy of trans rights, they attack that. Any kind of demand for equal treatment, they will find a reason to say that this is reactionary. And they will find a way of saying that everything that is a challenge to the way that things are now is worse than what we have now. I have a lot of different questions. 
I mean, does he still have some revolutionary communist aspect to his politics? No. So he's not talking about some overthrowing capitalism or any kind of transformation of society? No. I mean, I, I broke with them when they explicitly rejected Marxism and said that revolution was off the agenda for the foreseeable future. And that's just like such a, an indeterminate way of posing things, because how do you know? When revolutionary change comes, it's not like it's announced years in advance. Things can show, shift very quickly. So I, I thought that whole way of saying that the, the working class had been defeated and that there was no prospect for any radical transformation of society, I just thought that that was a collapse of confidence in the masses to be able to do anything. And then what about this, this, this tactic of taking extreme and divisive positions in order to bring attention to oneself or to one's organization. Like, I wonder if we can distinguish that from like the need for differentiation, which is a natural part of philosophy, right? Often we've criticized types of politics where people on the left just want left unity and they fear differentiation and they shy away from like conflict and criticizing things like maybe they don't want to call out the Stalinists and, or proto-Stalinists at the anti-war march because hey we're all here to like protest the war or maybe they don't want to like criticize the sort of economic determinisms of the Jacobinite crowd because they think like hey all of us on the left should be working toward the same thing so you know we've criticized those sort of positions right because they by glossing over really important theoretical differences, um, they actually don't help the left develop and take care of its problems and uh, work through real actual, real significant theoretical issues that need to be worked out, right? So you're not, you're not criticizing that sort of differentiation. You're talking about something that's more like sort of performative or almost like trollish. Yeah, because unlike what you're suggesting, which starts from, well, what is the foundation for this idea? What does it mean in its significance to the whole world and the prospects for fundamental change? And you pose it within that context. Whereas what they used to do is they say, well, how will this message be received and where do we go with it from there? And so it was always a presentational or marketing, if you want to be more pejorative, way of saying, okay, what is it that will provoke a response that will then allow us to recruit? That was their overriding desire. Right. There are a number of groups that do either that kind of thing or other things that are similar, not only in the UK, the US and so forth. They realize that they're not going to win over a majority of people, but what they want is hardcore cadre. And they go, who is going to stick it out and who's a good prospect for being with us long term through thick and thin, no matter what. And it's the people that will go with you with the most extreme line possible that alienates everybody else. It's kind of perverse, but there's a logic behind it. It did work for quite a long time. I mean, they were the third biggest revolutionary left organization in the UK, behind only militant tendency and the Socialist Worker Party. To my way of thinking, the big problem here, yeah, I mean, differentiation is important when the truth demands it. And the thing is that this is seems to me like, uh-oh, well, we took a good line on British imperialism vis-a-vis Ireland, nobody paid attention. So let's take just some extremely out there line, bend the truth to accomplish our immediate political aims. What does that say about what they called Marxism in the RCP? That's the thing, you see. There there was always a high degree of voluntarism inside the organization, which said that there's a relative independence between sort of political life and the, the way in which ideas and society understand what's going on. And even though it's ultimately determined by the structure of society and the economic base, they were saying that the ways in which people understand it was much more based upon ideological factors that were pushed and that gained traction. And their notion of what gained traction was about how well they were marketed, how well they were able to touch upon people's sense of, okay, that corresponds to the way that I see society. 
And if you could do it in such a way that touched that, then you had some chance of shifting them. It's a very voluntarist way of looking at consciousness and the way in which people's ideas develop. As well as opportunistic, basically this seems to be taken over lock, stock, and barrel from uh, Althusser. But, I mean, what, what, what you're describing is a populist orientation, you know, appealing to people where they're at. And that's where Ferretti and his people are at right now. So it seems that that's another point of continuity. So if we want to look at, like, you know, what's rotten about uh, Ferretti and going to CPAC Hungary and, and all of that, it, you know, it doesn't come from out of nowhere. It comes from that kind of populist orientation that seems to have been there from the very start. I think that's less true of the RCP um, back in the day than you might think, because actually... What they prided themselves on was being so contrarian that they actually stood out from the rest of the left. So people who had left instincts would come across this revolutionary communist party and just think, you just seem like out of nowhere. They were critical of Arthur Scargill during the minor strike, which seemed to be, well, hang on, he's the most militant trade union leader fighting the coal bosses on the closing down of pits and losing hundreds of thousands of miners' jobs. Oh, tens of thousands anyway. They said, no, you can't trust Cargill because he is committed to a framework of seeing a profitable industry. And that that's the death knell for the interests of workers, because you cannot tie your fortunes to that of a company in order to save jobs and conditions. And that's there's a certain logic to that. But on first face, when you criticize the most militant trade union leader, that's contrarian that's not going to attract people instantly and when i first came across them during the minor strike before i joined i just thought they were nutters okay i i agree with you with everything you just said so the thing though is there was this kind of populist orientation from the get-go even though they realized that they weren't going to be popular that they were going to be contrarian, they were going to be divisive, they weren't going to attract the majority. Still, the idea was, you know, instead of speaking the truth, instead of getting closer and closer to the truth, of having one's politics reflect what one's really for, and the actual conditions that we face, what you're going to try to do is appeal to people in terms of what works with them. You know, you're going to try to do the political equivalent of producing cat videos right so i I understand you know that 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 there's a contradiction in what they were doing on the one hand they were being divisive and contrarian on the other hand as you said they had this view that like what drives people is not you know an understanding of reality it's not the truth but they're mired in ideology and they can't escape it so what we have to do is appeal to them on ideological lines and that's just straight out of althusser that, that's a populist orientation, even though the way they pursued it back then was not like it was it was recognizing that they weren't going to be popular at that moment. But it seems to me that I mean, that's a very problematic facet of the politics that kind of has continued and it's taken over more and more space in their practice over time. That's the way it looks to me. I, I think the thing that makes it most insidious, though, is that it can present itself as being principled. Because if you are railing against what, for example, hundreds of thousands of people who came out on the the BLM protests, and you find a way to attack that as not being really radical, or in fact, inventing problems, that makes you seem edgy. I mean, it doesn't to me, but I'm, I'm saying that to a certain section of the population, anything that considers themselves against racism, but critical of a mass movement that's supposed to be the biggest challenge to the racist authorities, that makes it seemingly difficult to pigeonhole in terms of what they really represent. Because it's not obvious in the way that it would be from someone who is from the traditional right, where they, that they would just use kind of dismissive terms and racist language to dismiss a progressive movement like BLM or feminism or whatever it was, that the way in which they attacked it would be obvious 
and it would be obviously reactionary. I think in the case of with the RCP and continuing on with the way that Spiked and Faraday do it today, it's not that obvious. It's not as straightforward. What about the possibility that Faraday and others in that milieu have just always been open to or harboring racist and sexist ideas? And uh, when that opportunity presented itself politically for that to be more out in the open it just became more out in the open i don't believe that's true i think that there was a genuine turn that they they moved from being steadfastly against racism and being at the forefront of challenging british nationalism which under underlies it to just basically having done an about face and through a process of mediation over a number of years they came to represent the opposite of what they used to. I don't think it was always the case that they were in favour of racism and were just looking for it. That would be too easy because there are people who dismiss the RCP as having been funded by MI5 or the CIA even and say that they were always a, a kind of Trojan horse within the left. I don't think that's true. I think that they did stand for and believe that they stood for anti-racism and a new society and everything that goes with it, any equal rights for marginalised groups. They did used to stand for that and they used to argue for it in a way that would attract most people towards them. And the thing that spiked continue to do is that they try and polarize things in that sort of way but towards reactionary ends it's no longer in a progressive direction that tries to cut out the basis on which kind of more moderate voices would argue a point they're instead now trying to polarize a discussion to attack anything that challenges the status quo the contrarianism still there the progressive ends have shifted what about when andrew and i have criticized for instance, Jacobin magazine and some of their positions vis a vis Trumpism, the Trumpist base, so called identity politics, etc. We've talked about the inherent problems of the sort of simplistic economic determinism that a lot of those Jacobin writers write with that makes them very dismissive of any kind of freedom struggles that are outside of like traditional working class politics. We can see that sometimes enough extending to like a real critical and sort of arrogant attitude toward those kind of freedom struggles in in a way that even like takes on some of the right wing anti woke talking points. Is there any kind of that dynamic in the Frady spiked turn? Yes, there definitely is. In the sense that they will say that British society is no longer racist, and they will compare it to like previous times when obviously it was much more racist. That has been an element of progress. But it's almost as though, well, you know, it's gone far enough. You know, there's equal and then there's going too far as though equality has already been achieved. There's all kinds of discussions now on Spiked about the Tory party, for example, being the radical party in British politics, because unlike the Labour Party, they have now got Amongst their contenders for the new leader to replace Johnson, they've got a number of women and ethnic minorities who are in a prime position to go through. And the next leader is likely to either be another woman or, for the first time, someone who's non-white. And they're saying that's significant because you've now got a true meritocracy. They will talk about the equality of opportunity being what equality is really about rather than the equality of outcomes. So it's almost like taking what used to be a kind of mainstream liberal viewpoint, which is that we want to achieve equality of opportunity under capitalism, and they'll sell that as what's already been achieved today. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angela Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism 
extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Uh, going back to the issue of what has been responsible for this turn of, of Ferretti to the right and does it come from out of nowhere or was there something always amiss about that version of so-called Marxism that allowed them to move in the direction that they've moved? It seems to me that the elephant in the room is the vanguardism of the group even when they, they called themselves Marxists, the Revolutionary Communist Party regarded itself as a vanguard party to lead the masses. And when you think about what vanguardism is, one feature of all vanguardism is it does not make a clear distinction between revolutionary struggle to bring the working class or the masses to power and struggle to bring the so-called vanguard leadership to power. They don't make that distinction in other words, you know, vanguardists substitute themselves for the working class or the masses. So is that another point of continuity between classic Ferretti and new Ferretti? Has the drive for power been there as a motivating factor for Ferretti and people around him? Has, has that been there all along? The, the essential answer is yes. And the way I would kind of pass that a little bit is to say that when Ferreira was saw himself as a Marxist, he also saw himself as a vanguardist, and he failed to make the distinction that you're talking about. But it became clear at a certain point, and this is when the RCP were wound up. And and th there was a key document from the year 1990, which was called Midnight in the Century, which said that the working class had been finished as a political force, that they, they weren't able to make any impact on political life at all. They were dead and gone as a social force. And in that situation, we, as in the organisation, the RCP, had to think of a different way of operating. And so the, the, the goal then became to become reference points in the discussion in order to shape the way in which society moved forward until... It was left unstated, but until class politics re-emerged in some form, we had to shape the terms on which things would re-emerge. And it's that sense of we have to be the ones that lead the ideas that will shape the masses by becoming part of what ruling class debate is about. And that's that was the shift that occurred. And I think that the vanguardism facilitated that. But at a certain point, after the winding up of the organisation, there is no pretense of having to engage with the masses or represent 
what was needed for the working class to take power. So, yeah, the vanguardism always had a contradictory element in it, but people believed that they were doing it with a view to making a working class revolution, admittedly which they would lead, but in changed circumstances, some people found it acceptable to go in this new direction in a way that completely abandoned any commitment to working class revolution, which is the point at which I thought, this is not where I want to go. Right, so if you are interested in power and you think that getting the the working class behind you is the road to power and then you decide that no, the working class isn't going to get behind you, then you look for a different uh, road to power. That, that's that's easy enough to understand. Yeah. Very interesting. You're working on this new piece about uh, Frady, Ravi. As you write, uh, Frady is currently attacking experts on fascism, like Timothy Snyder, the Yale University historian who writes about fascism and authoritarianism. Uh, Timothy Snyder has recently drawn comparisons between classic fascism and Vladimir Putin. Frady claims that, quote, fascism was profoundly hostile to the spirit of populism, end quote. That's his criticism, I guess, of people like Tim Snyder. Uh, what do you think about this claim, and, and why is Frady trying to make it seem as if there's this really clear line between populism and fascism? I think that if you take out the idea of a liberal democracy and the protection of individual rights, then majoritarianism, even if it's not a majority, but if you have a large, the largest section of the population... If they are clamoring for a certain kind of change, as Orban claims they were doing in Hungary, then you can ride roughshod over the rights of minorities or marginal groups and say, yeah, but that's a democracy. You're in a minority, so you lose out. And the problem is that the whole presentation of the masses is that it's the same as a mob and mass and mob are conflated so something like the insurrection effort on the capital on january the 6th is seen as a mass protest that got out of hand and the the aims of the people involved are of secondary importance it's the superficial element that you have a large gathering of people that makes it a mass, whereas we would understand it as representing the, the majority of people in society in a way that is not setting themselves against the interests of other groups other than the ruling class. So it's, it's like a, a mass movement is just seen as involving lots of people rather than a democratic aspiration that involves lots of people pushing for their interest against the establishment. And it's the eliding of that distinction that I think Faraday is pushing. And he's, he's doing it for a particular reason, which is that all the stuff that he's defending now, whether it be Orban, Trump, whatever, it's a way of pushing a vision of democracy that is just about majoritarianism. And it's not even that but it's about mob rule. Yeah, another thing he does, which is in, in the article that Ravi is citing, uh, I, I, I believe it's there, Ferretti says, calling these ideas or whatever fascism is a way to delegitimize them and a way to basically say that you don't have to talk to your opponent, you, you just need to fight them. And my problem with that is he makes it sound like that's a bad thing. Well, that's a good thing. That's exactly what we need you know, is not to normalize this this arch reaction. So, I mean, he characterizes it by saying, oh, well, you, you know, you don't want to talk to these people. Well, damn straight, I don't want to talk to people who, you know, are, are going to push me the way they've they pushed my, my, my relatives in, into gas ovens. What's wrong with that? This, this idea that, that we should normalize fascism by calling it something other than fascism, calling it populism, that is the most lethal thing going on it's been going on with trumpism for, for a long time now and however a lot of people you know in the u.s immediately said no normalization of trump no normalization of trumpism we're not going to give into this by accepting its legitimacy in any way and there's been a battle all along in the u.s and it continues between 
uh, people who want to like say that Trump is a, is a liar and he lied, and then you get the both sides this media. One side says this, the other side says that. It's a big battle, and I mean, Ferrati manages to make it sound terrible that you want to uh, call fascism fascism, and to say this is abnormal will have nothing to do with it it's illegitimate and the people who peddle this stuff are enemies and we just have to fight them he makes it sound like it's terrible but he hasn't provided any argument as to why it's terrible instead of being the right thing that's all correct the the idea that the people who were involved in the january the 6th um, attack on the capitol should not be called insurrectionists that in itself the fact that they attack the capitol and try to stop the certification and the votes, in itself is illegitimate. If he doesn't see that and instead sees the attempts to, to brand it as such as an attempt to delegitimize them, I don't know where to go with that. It's just like, well, yeah, of course. Uh, are they still peddling the garbage about what took place on January 6th in light of uh, what the, the January 6th committee yeah. has? They're still peddling that, that garbage? Yeah. Oh, my God. What do, what, what, do, what do they say in response to the findings of the January 6th committee? I was doing updates on the January the 6th hearings on Facebook, and some of the people around Spite who are friends, who, who don't actually write for them, but they, they know them, and I'm, I'm, I'm friends with them. They were saying, well, so what did they break into the Capitol to do? To walk around and take selfies on lecterns and stuff? Well, I, I think that you a bit ago touched on a really important point, which is that if you take away all the context and you just see like masses of people doing things, then you really don't have a way of differentiating between reactionary and progressive political formations. I, you know, I guess if your only interest is in harnessing masses of people to follow your lead and, and the particular political content of their movement is irrelevant, um, then you get this kind of politics where populism is, you know, in itself is like the goal, I guess, you know, just making distinctions about fascism is like completely contrary to that sort of politics. So that's what you know, they have to like push back upon these people who are actually trying to like label the political content of these masses of people, you know, these reactionary masses of people. I mean, we've pushed back on this sort of thing a bunch of times on the podcast and in, you know, various things that MHI has written over the past six years or so. There was the whole panel that we talked about at one current event section. It was a panel sponsored, I think, by Platypus and had Ben Burgess, and they were pushing the same line where that these were just like uh, protesters and the left shouldn't applaud the FBI going after protesters, this sort, of, this sort of stuff. And, you know, we've seen this same like sympathy for the Trumpite base as this like innocent mass of people who are just disaffected by neoliberalism and could be harnessed to uh, social democracy with the right focus groups or something. It's like a failure to acknowledge that like, there can be reactionary mass movements. It's like a real blind blindness to, you can have like large amounts of people who have really bad politics and you, you should condemn them, you know? Well, in addition, there's an attempt to draw a hard and fast difference between fascist ideology and populist ideology. And that just does not wash. I think that when you get people like Timothy Snyder and they're able to explain why it doesn't wash, that that's the big threat to, to Ferrady. So he wants to say, oh, well, there's fascism, and that's anti-populist, and he gives some points that are not totally incorrect, but the problem is, I mean, especially like if you look at Nazism, Nazism is totally based in populism. They had the idea of uh, the Herrenvolk gets translated as master race, but it's Herrenvolk, master people. The Aryan people, it, it, it's a populist notion. One of their slogans is one people, one empire, one leader. All of populism is based as an ideology in the idea that there is such a thing as the people, some undifferentiated mass of people, not different interests within them, not you know different classes, no antagonisms, no racial antagonisms. There are the people, and then there's the other who don't fit. And furthermore, that this 
thing called the people has a will. You know, it has a single set of interests so that it can be represented by an undisputed authoritarian leader. That is what populist ideology is. And there is not a clear dividing line, obviously, between that and fascism. I, I don't know how anybody can argue against what I'm saying, except the way that Ferrati does, which is to say, well, you know, Hitler had brown shirts and uh, Mussolini had black shirts. And, well, Trump's got people with red caps, so it doesn't count, you know. That's the essential point about it, that as a form of apologetics, it doesn't go to the heart of what is it that characterizes fascism or populism today as a political phenomenon. And he cannot do it by saying this is what it means in context and explaining everything, because it, it would be too quick and it would be too easy to just say that's just wrong because it's patently false based on the fact that you are misunderstanding that in the example that you use, that they don't have to be wearing a specific uniform as paramilitaries to operate in a fascist way. Um, so the fact that the Proud Boys and the kind of Oath Keepers aren't a unified group, but instead two different organizations with two heads that are not under Trump's direct control, doesn't mean that they're not a fascist force in waiting. It's, it's almost like he, he will seize upon the most peripheral aspects to define why something is not fascism. So in the article, he talked about a fascist conference that took place in Switzerland back in 1934, in which the leader of the Spanish flange refused to accept Mussolini's invitation to attend this thing. He goes on to say, this is the quote, if it's rejected by many of those on the extreme right, how did fascism become such a generic concept? And it's, it's almost as though, well, this founding conference shows that it's an entirely local Italian phenomena, because even the leader of the Spanish flange didn't accept that his organization was fascist, even though someone else from the Spanish Falange did attend that conference. And the following year, the guy that he's talking about, a guy called Rivera, also attended the, the conference the following year. And it's almost like it's such a shoddy attempt to project anything that will undermine the narrative that what we have today is an expression of modern fascism. He's trying to in some ways, for creating apologetics for that. And the reason why it's dangerous is because anybody who's looking for an excuse for the movement that is going on around Trumpism or, or, or populism of any sort today, anyone who's trying to find a justification is not looking for an intellectually coherent explanation that goes to the heart of the matter, that corresponds to reality and checks against loads of evidence. They're looking for anything that can in any way justify their activity. And I think someone like Faraday provides that get out of being held to account for what you're really doing. So Ravi, uh, you've explained where Faraday has been heading. He's going to be heading more in that direction and he's bringing people along with him. You've explained why it's so dangerous. What can we be doing? Uh, what should we be doing to combat this danger? I think you have to show what the foundation of those ideas are and the trajectory that they're moving in. Because even if he's not saying it now, it's entirely in tune with him moving in the direction of fascism. Despite him being Jewish, despite his background, everything that he is doing today in terms of an indirect form of apologetics, and sometimes a direct form of apologetics, for the insurgent fascism that is here, him calling that hysterical and saying that anyone who tries to prove that there was a conspiracy to overturn democracy in the US, to kind of keep on pushing that message as a, as a propagandist is softening the way for this thing to come into power. And we need to come down hard on it and expose what it is that he's doing. Even if he doesn't recognize it, he must be aware of how dangerous potentially this is. And him minimizing the danger is reprehensible and it needs to be exposed as such. You know, ever since Trump, uh, ever since the resurgence of this authoritarianism in Europe, there's been this real dividing line on the left between people that were like really prepared to challenge 
Trumpism, uh, challenge authoritarianism and fascism, and those who were not prepared for it. And I think like this kind of conversation we're having where we're really not just condemning Ferradi as like someone who sold out or, or just had some sort of uh, completely personal change of politics, but showing like the pre-existing deficiencies in philosophy that allowed someone like Ferradi to fall into this uh, reactionary line of politics, like that's really an important contribution we can make, right? Because I think that people on the left for all sorts of different reasons, like were taken by surprise by the reactionary nature of the right wing today and are not theoretically prepared to like really deal with it adequately, adequately to condemn it forcefully enough to understand where it comes from, to understand the problems in their own philosophy that leads them to be so like permissive, unprepared, surprised, etc. So this kind of conversation hopefully can challenge people to be a little more self-critical of their own preconceptions politically and to extricate themselves from this sort of slippery slope where populism can like slide into modern reaction. Yeah, this is in the tradition of Karl Marx. He, you know, he started off as like a left Hegelian and the left Hegelians had the problem of Hegel having basically capitulated to absolute monarchy. And so they were like, oh, well, Hegel sold out, you know, for reasons of his career and so forth, you know, so he was a sellout, he was a renegade, and Marx is like, no, 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 no. Hegel peddled a lie, but the lie is the lie of his principles. Okay, there's something wrong in the Hegelian philosophy, not just personal things that led him to this, and I'm going to... Marx said, you know, get to the root of the problem in the Hegelian philosophy. And that's kind of how he, he got his start, and he broke with the left Hegelians and also with Hegel. So, you know, I, I think it really is an important point because everything is contradictory. No, nothing is ever one way or the other, you know, and every bad thing that, that, that occurs in the world develops from something that was already there. It, it, it's not just a, ever a matter of night and day. So I, I think this is a really important point of uh, Marxian method, and uh, I'm glad that, that Ravi is doing this, and I'm glad we're having this discussion. So thank you, Ravi, so much for your the, your piece and your future piece and for coming on the podcast today to talk about these things. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 